Hello, and welcome to the International Sonography Podcast, the podcast all about the occupation of diagnostic medical ultrasound all over the globe. I'm your host, Jamie Fujikawa. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to the International Sonography Podcast. I'm your host, Jamie Fujikawa, along with my co-host, Lorinda Andrist. Today, we are so excited to have a guest on the show, Dr. Phil Bendick. Dr. Bendick received his bachelor's and master's from MIT and his PhD from Stanford University in biochemical engineering. As an assistant professor of electrical engineering at Purdue University from 73 to 75, he helped establish the Medical Ultrasound Research Laboratory and worked on the development of random signal processing techniques for blood flow detection and measurement, precursors to today's coded excitation and B-flow techniques. Dr. Bendick became involved with the clinical application of ultrasound with his move in 1976 when he established the Non-Invasive Vascular Laboratory and also was a director of surgical research performing approximately 30,000 non-invasive vascular studies per year until his retirement in 2013. Dr. Bendick has authored and co-authored over 150 papers in peer-reviewed journals and 17 book chapters and has given over 300 presentations at regional, national, and international meetings and symposiums. He was not only a founding member of the Board of Directors of the Intersocietal Commission for Accreditation on Vascular Laboratories, but also has served on various boards, including the AIUM, JRCDMS, and also the Board of Directors on the Committee of Accreditation for Advanced Cardiovascular Sonography. Please welcome to the show, Mr. Phil Bendick. Thank you so much. I'm so excited to have you join us. I um, watched your physics talk at the SDMS conference this last year and Mm -hmm. knew right away, like, oh, we need to talk to him on the podcast. (laughs) Because I could have heard, I I had so many questions at the end that I didn't, I was too embarrassed to raise my hand and ask all of them. Hey, never, never be embarrassed to ask questions. That's how other people learn too, you know. I'm definitely not embarrassed on this forum because that's what it's all about, but (laughs) But I appreciated that talk so much, and um, and it was great to read into some of your history. And so now, of course, we have a whole list of questions we have. Oh, I see, I see that, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Could you tell us a little bit about where you grew up and what your childhood was like? Welcome to both of you. Glad to be here. I actually grew up in what I like to refer to sometimes as the middle of nowhere out in South Dakota. Uh, it's part of the Great Plains. It was actually in the big city in South Dakota, Sioux Falls, which had a population of about 50,000 at the time. But it was twice the size of any other city in the state, so we held the honor. But actually, it was, it was a great childhood. Uh, I mean, it was when neighborhoods were neighborhoods. Uh, you grew up knowing all your neighbors. Everybody's door was open. Uh, as kids in school, you'd, you'd go do things in the summer. You'd get on your bike in the morning after breakfast and disappear. And as long as you were home in time for dinner at night before it got dark, no one worried. So, yeah, it was, it was a good childhood in that sense and got to, a lot of freedom to do things that kids should be able to do. And unfortunately, in this day and age, they don't always get that chance because of the other social things going on that we have to worry about as parents now and grandparents also. But yeah, it was, I really very much uh, enjoyed the childhood. It was a great place to grow up, surrounded by uh, a lot of people that I still know and can stay in touch with. Uh, they are scattered all over the United States, of course, but surprisingly, uh, probably about half the kids I graduated from high school with still live back in Sioux Falls, that, which to me says a lot about the community. The fact that and the fact that when, when Citibank moved their national headquarters, they moved it to Sioux Falls. Oh, wow. So tells you a lot about the area and the values that you can uh, acquire out there. So 
Yeah, it was a great childhood, I have to admit. Well, did you know what field you wanted to go into? And did you attend college right out of high school? Oh, absolutely. I knew going through high school, I was going to graduate from high school, go to a local college and become a physicist. None of which worked out, fortunately. At my parents insisting, primarily my mother, uh, she said, well, that's fine if you want to go to the local college. It was a good, a very good Lutheran college and would have given me a good education. But she said, that's fine, but at least apply somewhere else. So I applied to MIT on the East Coast and Caltech on the West Coast. And then when I was accepted by both, had to make a decision. So, and as it turned out, I, I, I chose the East Coast route, uh, went to Boston to MIT for undergraduate and master's degree work. And then finally got to the West Coast when I went to Stanford as a graduate student and got my PhD, all of which, by the way, were in aeronautical engineering. So it really is all about rocket science, as it turns out. But as, as the PhD work was all related to biomedical engineering, just applying all the fluid mechanics that I learned in keeping airplanes afloat in the air, is the same thing that drives blood through the aorta. And the biomedical problems were so much more interesting to work on because of the other variables and, and boundary conditions, as we like to call them, et cetera. So that got me into biomedical engineering and through my graduate research work out at Stanford. That's impressive. I say it was just nothing like dumb blind luck to get you through life, as far as I can tell. So. <laughs> Some of it is, right? Were your parents in that field at all, or did they know that you were had to have the brain to go into that field? Well, actually, when I first went to college, there wasn't any biomedical engineering. Uh, there were a, a couple very early programs, I would say, one out at the University of San Diego, and that was more biomechanics, looking at the, the structure and elasticity of bones and things of that nature. But there, and Case Western Reserve University was just starting up a program as well. But there really weren't any biomedical engineering programs as such anywhere in the country. So this was just combined an interest I developed in the medical field, knowing full well I did not want to spend all that time and effort going to medical school after graduate school, yeah. but allowed me to get into the medical field and bring my engineering background and, and experience in, into that arena. So it was, I had no idea that's where I was headed when I went off to college, but things worked out to, in my mind for the best. So. Sometimes they take that atypical route and it seems like with the interviews we've done um, and, and, you know, finding out the history of, oh, yeah. kind of it's yeah, always it, been a roundabout way that they get yeah, involved. Just in as long as you stay open to new opportunities, life is fun. So. Yeah. So from that point in your career over on the West Coast, what brought you to start the biomedical ultrasound research laboratory at Purdue? Or was there something else in between those two events? Uh, no, that was my first job, real job, out of graduate school. And it was one, it allowed me to maintain an interest in biomedical engineering, allowed me continue to, to continue to do research. And Vernon Newhouse was the electrical engineering professor, and it was actually in the double E department. Uh, that I was working at the time, uh, was interested in developing some new concepts for Doppler flow meters, which I was also interested in working on. I had worked as a graduate student using laser Doppler techniques, uh, which are very precise in, the bil in, in their ability to measure flows, but you can't use it to measure blood flow because it won't penetrate. All the laser energy is absorbed too early, so it had to be ultrasound. 
And he was starting up a new ultrasound research laboratory, which sounded very interesting. And also at the same time, uh, they were bringing in Les Geddes from Texas and starting up at Purdue a whole new bioengineering research institute there. So it was just a good time to be at Purdue University. I was back in the Midwest uh, to my first real job, as it were. And it, again, opened up doors that I have been able to walk through ever since then uh, and led to the rest of my career, as it were. Again, through dumb blind luck as much as anything else. Uh, they would, I can one of one of those was basically uh, William Link was a graduate student in mechanical engineering at Purdue, and he was working with surgery professors at Indiana University down the road in Indianapolis, working on a new surgical tool called the plasma scalpel, with the physics of which we don't need to get into. But it was a fun device, and when he graduated, he actually went down to Indianapolis to the medical center. And so he laid the groundwork for me because after a few years, he had a job offer to go to the West Coast and out of the blue called me and said, would I be interested in taking his position at Indiana University at the Medical Center in Indianapolis? And my response was basically, when would you like me to start? <laughs> <laughs> Good response. So, yeah. So, I mean, Purdue led naturally down the road to Indiana University in the medical center and started working within the surgery department doing research and setting up a vascular laboratory. And this was back in uh, 1976. Leads us right into our next question was how did you transition into clinical application of ultrasound from the bioengineering side of things when you went to Indiana? And, and, and again, it was just a, a fortuitous set of circumstances. Uh, Dr. John Glover was the surgeon down there, and he wasn't an engineer, but he appreciated what engineering could do in, in terms of surgery and things. He was also a good vascular surgeon and had heard about these newfangled vascular laboratories being started up and was interested and asked me if I would uh, be, be interested and would like to develop one, and he would be the medical director and I would be the technical director. Those, term, those terms didn't exist at the time. Uh, so we got together and, and basically uh, started out and set up a non-invasive vascular laboratory in addition to being involved in surgical research, which was also a, a big thing of Dr. Glover's down there, and got me into a lot of other areas of surgery. But the primary goal was establishing a non-invasive vascular laboratory. And this was the days before there was duplex ultrasound. Yeah. So the, the first non-invasive instrument was an old Parks Doppler unit that ran off 12 D-cell batteries. Oh, my goodness. It basically had, had a plug-in for your headphones. It was in stereo, so you could hear forward and reverse flow in the two ears. Wow. Uh, and then, but we wanted hard copy recording. So I one day went over to the ICU and stole one of their EKG recorders and was able to hook that up to the output of the Doppler flow meter. And so we were able to get the analog tracings of things like the posterior tibial artery and the femoral artery and things of that nature. So we had our first non-invasive instrument with audio and hard copy recordings. And from that, this led on. Once duplex came out, we got into that area, obviously, as well. But that was the very beginning. The next instrument was actually a commercial piece, a uh, pulse volume recorder. Uh, from Life Sciences Instruments that Jeff Raines had helped develop out at Mass General Hospital uh, back in the early 1970s. So we had our we had our two go-to non-invasive instruments. Uh, shortly after that, if you want a little more history, which is always fun yeah. for me to talk yes. about, yeah. uh, came the oculoplethysmograph, 
and in which you put the suction cups on the patient's eyes and tried to detect carotid uh, artery blockage indirectly through the transit time of flow to the ophthalmic arteries or the ophthalmic artery pressure. There were two options. The Karshner-McRae was a transit time. The GOPG was a, an ophthalmic artery pressure device. But I always liken to explain this to people that imagine that an alien has landed on earth and they put suction cups on your eyes and they put suction on there until basically you became, it, it stopped blood flow. So you became temporarily or transiently blind and they would ask you to take you to your leader. And of course you would agree. And then they'd release the pressure and you could see again. Uh, but, but basically it was, uh, and the patients were incredibly accepting of this. Uh, just amazingly so that you'd explain to them what's going on. You'd numb the eyes a little bit with the little local op thing uh, before you put the cups on. So there was no no real risk or danger to them. Uh, but they you had to explain what was going on. But again, as a non-invasive device, it was fairly accurate and would detect fairly reliably very high-grade stenoses. Uh, not so much the milder ones. You couldn't tell if there was less than 50% stenosis for sure. Uh, greater than 70 to 80%, it was fairly reliable. So we had our armamentarium of non-invasive tools that, that we could work with. Uh, and then when duplex came along, of course, the whole world got changed dramatically. Mm -hmm. It allowed us to do a lot of things we couldn't do before with much greater accuracy. So yeah. that's, that's sort of the history. And this was the, and I was at Indiana from 76 to 86. And that was sort of the, the transition time in non-invasive vascular testing. Uh, from going to the physiologic indirect test to the more direct duplex uh, sonography testing. So it was, a, it was an interesting time to be there. Yeah. And again, there, there weren't really any RVTs available. Uh, we, we scrounged our personnel. I would, I would go through and find out who was burned out in the surgical or coronary ICUs uh, because they were the nurses who were most used to working with equipment, not afraid of technology, and say, we're looking for a little more laid back lifestyle, if you were. Sure. So a little less grind and a little more. A little, little less grind, a little more challenge. Cause it, and, and, but again, the new skills they could learn, uh, but worked out very well. Wow, those suction cups make putting a pair of contacts seem like a piece of cake. Oh, yeah. <laughs> so, that's fascinating. And the duplex earphone, I mean, the earphones that you guys had that had the reverse and the forward flow in, in one ear and then the reverse in the other? Absolutely. Yeah, it was, it was in stereo. Yeah. yeah wow. and, but, but that wasn't originally available. That, that took some work by some of the pioneers. I think we'll probably come to Don Baker a little later. But, yeah, uh, yeah. Well, was it after Indiana in 86 that you went to Michigan? That's correct. Yeah. Okay. And, yeah, so let's. I, I went went there with Dr. Glover, who was he was the head of surgery at Indiana, uh, was recruited to go up to Beaumont Hospital just outside Detroit, Michigan, in '86 as chief of surgery, and brought me along to again set up another new non-invasive vascular lab, which didn't exist at the time in the hospital, and also be director of surgical research up there, which was the fancy title they made up for me. So. <laughs> I was going to ask you about that. Tell us as our time is doing both of those roles and what your, what your daily uh, responsibilities were at that time. Well, and again, uh, it was, as you say, a twofold role, one very clinical, developing and setting up a non-invasive vascular laboratory. And the second was strictly research uh, and, again, surgical research and was able to get involved in a lot of very interesting projects uh, at the, the hospital within the surgery department and actually then collaborated as 
that sort of grew, was able to collaborate with other departments, uh, particularly cardiology, uh, which was outside uh, the surgical department. But again, it let me keep on any given day. I could be seen uh, doing non-invasive examinations on patients in the morning and doing animal research work in the afternoon or vice versa or spend the whole day one or the other. But it offered me a tremendous amount of variety and, again, got exposed to a lot of things I wouldn't have otherwise. So it wasn't strictly just a clinical doing the same thing day after day environment. Uh, it was always being involved and open for new ideas. And at the same time, Dr. Glover, as head of the, the department, instituted a five-year surgical residency program, one year devoted to research. So we had a lot of able, capable hands in the research laboratory and they would bring in fresh new ideas, things they'd see in their first two or three years of surgical residency that they would like to investigate further. And we could take those questions into the laboratory uh, and do all kinds of fun things. So, wow. And um, one example is uh, being Michigan. Uh, again, you worry about patients coming in in the winter that collapse in the snow and come in hypothermic. Uh, we did a lot of research on how best to resuscitate patients with severe hypothermia. Oh, so, yeah. Yeah, yeah. You don't, you don't want to warm them from the outside. You want to warm them from the inside. you got to heat the core first. Otherwise, the periphery vasodilates, all the blood rushes there, and they have basically cardiovascular collapse and die. Uh, so, again, it's, it's things that we were able to work on with real clinical applications. Yeah. Uh, uh, and again, another of the fortuitous circumstances is at that same time, uh, Beaumont was in the process of becoming a level one trauma center. And part of that requirement is you have to have a research arm and you have to have publications. So there was a lot of interest on the part of the, the staff in the trauma surgery section uh, in doing research as well. So we got to, to play with and answer uh, a lot of good, solid clinical questions. Wow, that's fascinating. That's how my days would go by. I'd, I'd get to work on all this different fun stuff. So there's a lot of yeah, variety. It sounds like never a boring day for you there, for sure. No, no. I can, cannot ever remember boring days. Long days I can remember, but boring, not so much. <laughs> how do you warm the core before you warm the peripheral? Uh, basically, you, you get a uh, cardiac pump, basically an offshoot of a cardiac pump, forced perfusion. You put in annula in the femoral artery and vein. And uh, you just start cranking warm fluid in. Wow. So, That's fascinating. Again, it, yeah. So, and again, a, a lot of that is now used clinically and in other ways as well. And what was the focus of your animal research that you were doing there? Oh, and, and again, there's a lot of that was vascular related. Uh, Dr. Glover's team was, was one of the, the first to develop the techniques uh, called endothelial seeding. Uh, one of the problems, as you're well aware, with vascular bypass grafts, particularly prosthetic grafts, is they're prone to thrombosis and failure mm -hmm. because they do not have a natural lining of endothelial cells, which are very good inhibitors of things like thrombosis. The endothelial cells are great biochemical factories that can cause, uh, create vasodilation, uh, put out other things that prevent uh, thrombosis within the, the graft. So, and this actually started in Indiana, but carried it on up to uh, Michigan uh, when we went up there, is the idea of harvesting live endothelial cells from a patient's vein, say, stick a piece of saphenous vein, and harvest those live endothelial cells ahead of time 
grow them in culture so you have a lot of them, and then pre-lining a prosthetic graft uh, with these endothelial cells before you implanted the graft. Wow. And that would improve graft patency. And yet it worked very well in animals. Uh, it had a lot of practical clinical problems, unfortunately. Uh, yeah. And so it really hasn't uh, come to its fore, but it led to a lot of other cellular research, uh, basically in what you could do in culture in, in terms of uh, cellular growth and developed a, a process that ultimately was able to be patented through the Beaumont Research Institute that you could in culture develop viable cardiomyocytes hmm. uh, and you could actually see them pulsing with a cardiac rhythm in culture. Uh, wow. Some interesting things like that. And then also uh, got into some of the genetic engineering of endothelial cells and, and giving them, implanting in them the ability to actually secrete more vasodilators or secrete more antithrombotic agents and do some of these things. So, wow. And again, this was just some of the things going on back then that now you have very, very fancy high-tech labs around the world doing similar type things. I mean, they've outpaced clearly our capabilities because we were infants in the field at the time. But uh, now that these techniques have grown so much that the, the really outstanding labs around the world are doing similar types of things. So I like to think of us as a little bit of pioneers in that regard. Absolutely. But again, it, was, it was the fun stuff. Yeah. And, and we'd have weekly meetings and we'd toss around ideas of, of things we were doing. And, uh, and what could we do next and where can we go with all of this? What was the most common time a type of animal that you guys did the vascular research on? Uh, mostly dogs. Okay. Uh, yeah. Uh, we did a lot of uh, uh, canine research because they were readily available. They were good models. Mm -hmm. uh, and again, they, they had vessels that were of a size appropriate to work on for the, this type of modeling and implanting graphs. So, and again, we had a fully, fully accredited animal research laboratory. We followed all the rules and regulations. Uh, the animals had better living quarters than the patients. <laughs> certainly, they certainly had better operating rooms than patients did in terms of the requirements and everything else. So, yeah, if I were a patient, I'd just soon have had my surgery in one of the animal rooms as a, as a regular operating room in some cases. But, uh, but again, it was a fully accredited facility, so we, we maintained all of the standards doing all this, of course, and never had any trouble from other organizations or things. Wow. But again, we had a, an animal care committee on which I served as a member for years and years and made sure everything was done properly. Uh, any research projects, obviously, were fully screened ahead of time by a panel of scientists and, and sure. experts and ethicists as well. Uh, so, again, it was uh, done on the, very much on the up and up, but done in a very good way. And I say, very interesting results from all of this. Yeah. They also occasionally uh, use pigs when they were, because they most mimic the human circulation. <laughs> uh, did a lot of mice and, and rat type research, obviously, could use larger numbers for things like that. But awesome. yeah, just a wide variety of animals. At uh, one point, we're using rhesus monkeys. So wow. uh, we yeah. had uh, a fully equipped uh, facility to handle all of these different species and things. So. Yeah, that's great. But again, it was just a fun variety of things to work on. What a tremendous impact you have had on our field, both on the technical engineering side as well as the clinical side for research. It's absolutely fascinating, and we are tremendously respectful of that. I'm wondering if you have anything that you feel is a specific 
jumping off point for our listeners as far as I know you had done some early research in bee flow, obviously, and you mentioned Don Baker earlier briefly, and he was also trying to do that initial application of the Doppler effect into medical ultrasound use. Did your paths ever cross as far as research or collaboration on anything? Uh, our paths crossed multiple, multiple times, and I'm still a good friend of Joan uh, Baker. Uh, but again, I met Don very early in the midnight, shortly after I started at Beaumont, actually, because one of the things I did, uh, I took a trip out to Seattle, and it was shortly after Don had started working with folks that ultimately became ATL. Yes. And one of their first commercial efforts at an instrument was a pulse Doppler flow meter. It was a blind pulse Doppler flow meter. It didn't, wasn't hooked to any imaging at the time, obviously. And it was hard to believe actually Don did this, which I'll get to in a minute, but basically it was a pulse Doppler flow meter that was designed to be a, a player in the cardiology market. And they were showing off this new instrument. They could look at the, they had the probe appropriate. You could look at the suprasternal notch, look at the aortic outflow, look at mitral valve and aortic valve flows, look at all of that, as well as some other peripheral flows. Uh, and, but again, it was pulse Doppler. Hmm. And you're looking at targets at a long range and high velocities. So what do you get? You get aliasing like crazy. Yeah, and they sure. didn't know how to solve that problem back then. <laughs> so ultimately, the, the device turned into the pulse Doppler component of the early ATL Mark whatever, four Mark V instruments, duplex sure. instruments, uh, and in, in part. But again, that was my first exposure to Don Baker uh, was, was through this effort. But it was also when he was at the University of Washington where they had Gene Strandis, and Gene Strandis clearly saw potential applications for this technology in the peripheral field, where, of course, it's very useful because you can use pulse techniques on superficial peripheral vessels without a lot of hassle and worrying about aliasing or range ambiguity problems. So, again, good fortune struck again. But, yeah, I, and then I would see Don at meetings throughout the years as, as time went by. And, and I can't say I knew him really well, uh, but certainly enjoyed his company whenever I was with him and uh, would talk to him and, and, and talk as engineers. And he is sort of one of the original, what I call, consider the, the big three uh, in pulse Doppler technology is Don Baker when he was at University of Washington, uh, Pierre Pirino, who was in Paris, France at the time, and Fran McLeod, who was at Cornell University in upstate New York. All three of those names were working very hard on pulse Doppler technology, and, and Don Baker was able to incorporate his into duplex ultrasound with obvious success. Uh, uh, Drs. Perrineau and McLeod uh, basically were working on multi-channel devices, and they could actually do real-time in nearly instantaneous velocity profiles in the large vessels using multi-channel pulse Doppler devices. Hmm. Uh, and, but again, this is all way back in the 1970s. Uh, and again, you've seen where technology has gone since then. It's absolutely. Just, I mean, there's absolutely. leaps and bounds. So it's, to me, it's just fascinating to see the evolution and growth of all this technology over the years. Also, 76 was the year I went to, as I say, out in Seattle, University of Washington, met Frank Barber, who was the engineer uh, responsible for Jane Strandis's first efforts at a duplex ultrasound instrument. 
Hmm. He was the one incorporating imaging technology with the outrigger Doppler technology, combining that into one duplex ultrasound instrument. So the, the Rushmore Institute at the University of Washington, which was focused on bioengineering, was a, a major seeding ground for a lot of things that we now take for granted. Absolutely. And it's easier for, really easy for my generation to take for granted all the work that went into before we got a reading, we got a, you know, an image to go along with the Doppler, um, like you said, aliasing corrections that we constantly, oh. it's so easy for us to take it for granted. Yeah. So. Yeah. I, I mean, aliasing is to the point now, the engineers know what happens, the machine knows it happens, people who do the physics know what happens, but nobody cares because we can deal with it now. So, <laughs> and I just, with the touch of one my, my comment to, <laughs> My comment to ARDMS is just take it off the exam. No one cares about aliasing any longer. <laughs> That's right. And we've talked about that. Like, what do you do as the technology um, oh, you know, surpasses a, the need to do these equations that they have still on some of the certifications? Oh, it's, it's a huge challenge that ARDMS is going to face in the next five years because, uh, again, there, there are lots of new things still coming down the pike sure. uh, that, that are just being introduced into the clinical arena. Uh, one such being that basically now using uh, virtual imaging technology and signal processing, basically you can, you create an entire image. The entire image is in focus. You don't need focal zones. You don't have to specify focal zones. No, just the image is automatically in focus through uh, basically instead of real scan lines, you now have virtual scan lines. Yeah. And it's all done through uh, signal processing and the, the ability to transmit a lot of signals in a hurry and process them much faster. So, yeah. again, well, this, I think it's the, great. ARDMS, the challenge to ARDMS is awesome. I'm glad I'm not having to write their exams. <laughs> in flux between technologies and what do you do with that exam when that happens exactly and that's what we've found is like where is and then where is the brain space that you used to have to use for equating the physics and and knowing yeah. what, how to do with the formulas and they you know edelman even prepared for people taught them the physics portion you know to use on yep. this education yep. exam so now that that brain space doesn't have to be taken up i think it's important to know because i think it not only we it not only makes you use a better understanding of what you're doing, but as far as the testing, what are you going to replace that with? When that's taken out, you can fit yeah. a lot more things in that may be yeah. more yeah. important. Yeah, and, and anytime I've tried to teach sonographers physics, I, I always try and teach that here's the physical principle, but here's what it means clinically, because here's what's going to happen clinically based on this principle. And that's what you really need to know. You don't need to know the principle. You don't need to know the equation. I've never taught anybody any equations, and I hope I never will. <laughs> you need to understand the basic underlying principle and what are the clinical implications of the principle. Yeah. Uh, you need to understand that, yeah, the mirror imaging is more than a concept. It's a reality out there. Absolutely. And here's what it looks like, and here's how it happens. So once you understand that, yeah, then you're good. But make sure it has clinical application uh, before you spend much time and effort on it. For sure. I think it's much more important to know what it means than, than how you figure it out. If you're oh, yeah. not going to have to yeah. figure it yeah. out. The engineers and physicists can deal with the how. Yeah. The, the sonographers have to deal with the day-to-day -day implications of what it's doing to their study and, and their data. And what does it mean for their patient? Absolutely. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. 
Well, I'm going to take a shift now, and I'm sure many of our listeners may know this, but some perhaps do not. But uh, we recognize that you have had uh, positions on various boards, and I'm going to start off with one that I'm very curious about with how you went about initiating with the Society of Vascular Technology at the time, the International Commission for the Accreditation of Vascular Laboratories, or ICAVL, and yeah. obviously it's uh, other children as well. Oh, yeah. The name, uh, ICAVL, was not an easy one to come up with because nobody wanted ICAVL or ICAVL as a name. But again, that actually got started as an organization uh, in 1989, Gene Strandness sent a letter to Denny Baker at UCLA through the uh, Society for Vascular Surgery and said, hey, there are some problems out there with non-invasive vascular labs. People are sort of using them, but they're not know what, they don't know what they're doing. Uh, they have no standards. Uh, they use bad techniques. They use bad technology. Is there something we can do? Uh, and is that so, what fueled the fire, so to speak? That's what that fueled the fire, exactly. Uh, that letter. And I actually, somewhere in my files, I have a copy of that letter. So wow. it, it's, it's in, and I think, uh, I think the, the IAC, the Accreditation Commission, has a copy in their files as well. But it's a very interesting letter in that regard. But it started this whole thing. Mm-hmm. So they got together and organized a group of potentially interested players, which would be the society at the time, you say Society for Vascular Technology, SDMS, from the sonographer's perspective, American College of Radiology, Society of Vascular Surgery, the Intersocietal International Cardiovascular Surgical Society, uh, other radiology groups, the American Institute for Ultrasound and Medicine. And the call went out, if you are interested in participating and seeing if we can develop this group, uh, appoint two representatives and send them to this meeting. Well, again, through dumb blind luck, the president of AIUM at the time was not a physician. He was a PhD scientist, Bill O'Brien from the University of Illinois, whom I also happen to know very well because I'd done work with him in the past in research. And he called me up and asked if I would be interested, uh, along with Chris Merritt, as being the AIUM representatives. And I said, sure, it sounds like, sounds like a good idea. So had our first organizational meeting in 1989. Uh, and again, Brian Thiel was the as Society for Vascular Surgery uh, uh, representative, was sort of the lead point person, if you will, at the time. And so we had this meeting and we decided, yeah, something really needs to be done because, again, there was a lot of really bad work going on out there in the field of non-invasive testing and thought, well, let's see, how can, how can we develop some minimum standards and came up with the Intersocietal Commission because it was multiple societies for the accreditation of vascular laboratories or ICAVL at the time. A painful, clunky process and people who have been involved in, at the time can tell you the same. Uh, the application was long, it was horrendous, it asked for a lot of information that never got used uh, and other things, but ultimately it did grow and it gathered respect in the field, and a lot of responsible vascular laboratories went ahead and went through the process, even as painful as it was. Uh, and so it, it took a while to take off, but slowly it grew and grew to where it is now, where I think it's a very widely accepted uh, standard of care uh, for patients in non-invasive testing. And the, the formal name now 
is the Intersocietal Accreditation Commission for Vascular Testing. The IAC is the parent group because once the vascular laboratory success was seen and how well it did in getting laboratories to commit basically to quality, uh, that was the big goal. You're, you're making a commitment to quality and you're continuously checking to make sure quality is maintained. Uh, the next group on board were echocardiographers. So to accomplish that, basically, we, we set up a parent corporation, the IAC, or Intersocietal Accreditation Commission, and now we have vascular testing and then echocardiography. And after that uh, came a host of others uh, that, are, that are now there. We have CT and MR uh, and, and other areas that the, the IAC is the parent corporation for. And so they have a parent board that manages the finances for the whole corporation and sort of general overall uh, philosophy or mission, if you will. But each of the separate boards still maintains their work and they are still independently responsible for quality in their areas of expertise. So it, it has grown uh, quite large uh, and again, but started small, took a long time to, to be accepted. Uh, but now it is very much a known quantity out there that, that people look to and respect for their the basically commitment to quality in, in medical decision-making and testing. And I recognize that part of that accreditation deals with the certification of the lead uh, person in the department as well as the sonographers or vascular technologists. Absolutely, yeah. Because a lot of this was going on in parallel to some of the activity going on with the CARA bill or potential state licensure. Was there any discussion in those early IAC meetings about that this was a different pathway to encourage reimbursement for an accredited lab forcing the certification issue as a different method rather than a legislative path? Well, and again, the, the, the mission was very clearly stated. It, it's about quality in testing. Uh, yes, discussions were made, obviously, about reimbursement. It's nothing we could impact. That would have to be the third-party carriers, particularly Medicare's. The vascular testing, 75% of our patients are Medicare patients. So, and, and Medicare ultimately, uh, in part, has bought into that concept of not reimbursing non-accredited laboratories. Uh, I'm not sure how strictly that's enforced, uh, but it is a policy of theirs. It took a long time. Uh, and in terms of certification versus accreditation, uh, we opted that accreditation was a little more powerful pathway because it looked at the entire process. It looked not only at sonographers, it looked at reading physicians, it looked at the facilities, it looked at the equipment, and it looked at the final product, which is the, basically the diagnostic report that determined the patient's fate. And what is what was all the quality components that went into that entire organization? There were lengthy uh, debates, sometimes strong, uh, about should we require sonographer certification? And the general consensus was, yes, sonographer certification is a great idea, but it's too early. There are not enough RVTs out there to support that. And, and basically, that would have killed the entire accreditation concept dead in its tracks had we tried to implement that as a mandate from day one. Sure. So it was always there. It was always in the long-range plan. 
Ultimately, it became part of a requirement for a technical director. And then finally, 25 years down the road in 2015, it became a requirement for the entire staff. So, but then again, if you look at the grand scheme of things, 25 years is not so much. Maybe to younger people, that's a long time. To some of us, it was a long uphill struggle, but we got there. We got where we wanted to be, probably took a little longer than we would have liked. Uh, but we did end up where we wanted to be in that regard. And, and other accrediting bodies are following suit with that as well. Yes. And that's such a commendable and tremendous impact that you have had in that area, uh, which sort of leads me to the next question as your impact on yet another board. And that would be the involvement with the uh, KHEP and the development of the advanced uh, cardiac sonographer. And what are your thoughts about the potential of that expanding to vascular in the sense that there is now available some program content for a vas advanced vascular program. And, and again, I can say as being in the ground floor and that again, I was just in the right place at the right time because the original chairman of that group for the advanced cardiac sonographer uh, was Michelle Beerig and she's former editor of JDMS and I followed her in that position and she knew I had a vascular background. And the intent of that group was an advanced cardiovascular sonographer. That's always been the intent. Uh, cardiac was obviously the starting point because cardiology, in all honesty, had done a little more work about the nitty-gritty specifics of what an advanced cardiac sonographer meant. And they had some, some protocols in place. They had some outlines in place, and had, they had done their homework as well. Uh, so it was very clear that the group was going to start originally and work on the cardiac aspect. But the long-range plan, again, is there will be a peripheral vascular arm within that advanced cardiovascular practitioner or sonographer concept. So that's always been the goal of, of that group. And as best I can tell, I rotated off that board a few years ago, but as best I can tell, that goal still remains in place. They just need, like the ICAVL did, they need to get the initial group up and running, get it established, get it accepted, and then start growing from there. So it also didn't hurt. I'd served as the uh, SDMS representative uh, to the JRC DMS for several, six years uh, before that and had been in, in involved in, so I'd been involved in JRC and KHEP things before and sort of knew sort of the ins and outs and, and all of that. So that didn't hurt at all having that background. So, but again, it was an interesting time setting up a, a whole new field, if you will, uh, and again, seeing that it, it has grown to where it is now, and there are programs out there, there are people graduating from these programs, and it seems to be doing quite well. So it's a matter of giving it time to mature and grow and then expanding it to involve the vascular aspects as well, because it is a system. I yeah. mean, the heart pumps, the vessels receive it and return it. Yeah, it, oh it's kind God. of a closed system. So cardiovascular is one word. Yeah, exactly. You're right. I mean, that's why I felt like when people said, do you want to go into cardiac or vascular? I kind of felt like, wait, well, can you, can you choose there. to separate those? Yeah. I don't think you can separate those. Yeah. Well, you, you sort of you sort of can because I like to joke with the, our vascular lab at the hospital is right around the corner from our echo lab. So I like to joke with the, the echocardiographers next door that, yeah, once it leaves the heart, it's ours. Don't worry about it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, maybe a contractor can separate you with a wall, but in the body, not so yeah, much. Exactly, not so much, exactly. <laughs> really. yeah. Of all the hats you've worn in terms of being an associate 
uh, professorships in electrical engineering and surgery, director of a vascular laboratory, uh, working with one of the major imaging companies, uh, GE, researcher, journal editor, published author, and widely respected lecturer, also vascular imaging consultant, and and additionally, an RVT, um, (laughs) taking these various hats that you've held what is one of your favorite experiences um, that you've had? And then maybe one of your most challenging and why? So, Well, uh, favorite and challenging, actually, probably they're, they're the same. Okay. Uh, and I, I think as the, the five years I was editor-in-chief for the JDMS Journal, Journal of Diagnostic Medical Sonography, uh, was uh, my favorite because it allowed me to learn a lot of things I didn't know anything about because it wasn't just vascular articles any longer. It was the entire field of sonography. And I say, I'm still woefully ignorant when it comes to obstetrics. I don't know nothing about birthing them babies, Miss Scarlett. (laughs) (laughs) But but then again, I'm I'm smart enough to not get involved with obstetric scanning because I probably know just enough to be dangerous. (laughs) But, but again, as, as editor, I got the, the final say on all the articles that would come through, and I would be able to have the opportunity to read them, edit them, uh, look up their references, learn so much more about the entire field of sonography. A lot of things, obviously, I'd never heard of. Uh, so again, and, but again, at the same time, that was very challenging because that can be time-consuming. Absolutely. I'm, bas- I'm basically learning three whole new fields of sonography uh, on the fly. Uh, and trying to get journals together. But I feel very good about those five years. I think we put out some very good quality journals at the time. We've we've, uh, basically increased the CME content uh, during my tenure as editor significantly. And it was a goal which I was able to achieve. There were at a minimum two CME credits available in every journal I edited and we published. Uh, Now they've upped it even more. You can get even more through the journals now. Uh, and again, but it takes work and effort by a larger team, and we've been able to expand the team of people uh, under Kevin's leadership and as editor in the journal. So there are there are volunteer groups out there through SDMS that are doing a lot of the writing and other things out there. So again, seeing that journal come to life, seeing it grow, and it's it's sent out to like I think it has a distribution distribution of just over twenty seven thousand issues every two months. So it, it goes to a lot of people, gets to a lot of places. Yeah. So I say that that was probably one of my favorite things, certainly the most challenging. There's no question about that. Yeah. Is just being involved all of a sudden in so many different fields of sonography I hadn't necessarily been exposed to before. Uh, but again, the other other most favorite part of the entire career is just all the people I've been able to meet and work with. Uh, uh, from on the medical side, on the engineering side, and the sonographer side, it's just the whole field is just full of really neat people who are fun to be around and work with, who are just so totally committed to high quality patient care that uh, you just can't say enough about them. Yeah. That's great. And I think that we, well, at least I'm going to speak for myself, I can appreciate that that's kind of the reason I did this too, is I felt like I only knew this much about something that has this much, you know. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. And that's, that's the fun of it. Keep expanding. Yeah, exactly. And I think every time we sit down with somebody or every time I even sit down with Lorenda to plan an interview, I think I learned it's like going back to school all over again. So um, it is fascinating, but it is challenging. 
No, I can I can understand that. Well, I know when we look through your bio, it says you are quote retired, and you are also semi retired. Semi retired, like, like everybody else we meet in this group, absolutely. <laughs> and that you are a vascular consultant. However, I did notice that you are listed recently as being involved with CVR Medical. And if you could kind of explain to us in the audience as far as what that is and where does it, how, will, how is it going to impact our field well, in the future, perhaps? Well, uh, hopefully positively. <clears throat> um, basically, this is something that I got involved in just before I re- retired from Beaumont. Is CVR Medical is a small startup company that has a device that is non-invasively designed to detect carotid artery stenosis and quantify to a certain degree uh, the amount of stenosis, just like duplex ultrasound, but a much simpler device. Uh, the device has is strictly sensors. It's passive. It does not transmit or emit anything. But if you if you go back to basic fluid mechanics, and if you think about narrowing in a carotid artery, as blood flow goes past the narrowing, it creates these little eddy currents downstream. Those eddy currents basically are minor pressure perturbations that are transmitted through the vessel wall to the surface of the skin if you have a pressure transducer sensitive enough to pick them up. Sure. And that's what this device is. So basically, it's a sensor placed on the skin that picks up these small vibrations, if you will, pressure perturbations created by the eddies. Sure. End-stage disease, we call this a brewery. Yes. We've true. heard breweries with stethoscopes for years. Sure. So this basically is a super sensitive stethoscope that picks up a brewery before it's audible. Wow. And the other thing, and again, it goes back to engineering and fluid mechanics. The, the theory has been around for a long time. Uh, and the fluid mechanics says very clearly the intensity of the perturbations or vibrations and the frequency of the vibrations increases with increasing stenosis. Hmm. So if you measure the amplitude and frequency of these vibrations with your sensor, <clears throat> you can estimate degree of stenosis with a certain degree of accuracy. And, and again, it's, it's, it's just like a eutectic brewery, you, you suspect there's a significant stenosis. Well, analyze that brewery. And again, this is not new. Uh, 1981, Gene Strandness published an article, I believe in Stroke, uh, that looked at a, an analog recording of Bruys, and he ran it through his very early crude spectrum analyzer, and he was able to predict minimal residual lumen, which is basically degree of stenosis, sure. based on spectral analysis of an audible Bruy. And he did it quite well. Yeah. What this instrument does is takes 21st century technology and just does it better. Sure. And the nice thing about this, it doesn't require a lot of special training. Sure. Uh, it's basically getting the two sensors in position appropriately in the right position on the neck over the carotid bifurcation or just above it. So you can pick up these vibrations if they exist. If there's no narrowing, they don't exist. There's, there's nothing to analyze. So that's a zero degree of narrowing. But again, and then just using computer algorithms to solve the problem of what is the intensity, what is the frequency of these vibrations, and spitting that out as a degree of narrowing. Sure. The whole test takes two minutes. So is this like a neck cuff or is it a handheld? What is it? It's basically it's just two little tiny pods okay. in, in an array that are, are held against the neck passively, not a lot of pressure. Okay. And you just hold it against the neck uh, as part of this sensor array, and then the electronics signals are fed off to the computer for analysis. 
Wow. Totally non-invasive, totally passive. Uh, it, it's going through the process of FDA clearance as we speak. Uh, oh. so the formal application's not made yet, but we've had pre-submission meetings with the FDA uh, to get approval for this. To, to what kind of, how are they going to classify the device, basically? Yeah. Uh, to, to go through all the, the proper hoops and steps there involved in, in what I'm doing with the company is using the people I've known so long and going around and establishing clinical sites to evaluate the device for accuracy, comparing the device's results to an immediately following duplex ultrasound examination, which sure. has become fairly well accepted out there. And I'm only going to those labs I know do high quality work. They've been accredited for a long time. People I've known in the field for a long time. Uh, so again, that's, that's my role with the company right now is sort of being involved in the clinical aspects of evaluating the device to make sure it is able to do what it should be able to do. Yeah, so it accurate. will be used as like kind of a first, like the first screen. Yeah, and the ultimate goal, let's put this device, since it's so easy to use, in the hands of primary care physicians. And if sure. you have an elderly patient who might be at risk for carotid stenosis, spend two minutes to find out. And if the device suggests there is stenosis, then send them on to a duplex. So, yeah. and again, you're not going to do anything bad to patients based on a positive result. You're going to send them off to a non-invasive study like duplex to really sort out more precisely what's going on. Absolutely. Yeah. That's what it, yeah, that's, so, that's a great So point. again, that's, that's the goal uh, of this device and, and more a uh, tool for primary care physicians as opposed to fancy vascular laboratories. Well, getting it in the hands of more people that can get the right oh, yeah. people to and, and, get evaluated. We, we yeah. have somewhere in the neighborhood of five to seven million people out in the country right now that have carotid stenosis at risk for stroke. Yeah. And we have, I don't know, what, 90,000 fatal strokes a year? Absolutely. Uh, over a third of which are related to carotid disease. So potentially, if you get this out there and looked at all the appropriate people, you eliminate 25 million strokes a year. That's great. That's the, that's sort of the bottom line. That's sort of the ultimate bottom yeah. line. <laughs> Talk about improving lifespan and, uh, exactly. and quality of and, life. And, and yeah. post-stroke care is one of the highest line item budgets that Medicare has every single year. Yeah. So, again, it, it's, so it's an economic benefit. It's a quality of life benefit across the board. Yeah. That's, so that's, that's sort of what I'm doing right now in my spare time. <laughs> spare time in your semi-retired status. So. Exactly. <laughs> Well, but we, again, it keeps me in touch with all the people I've known for so long because I can I set them up Sometimes. to establish clinical sites and stay in touch with them and, and, and stay active in the field. So. I totally appreciate that. Yes, and yeah. sometimes you do establish things like this podcast to stay in touch with yeah. people that have had an impact on you. So exactly. <laughs> to have a reason to hang out with them and, and have a finger in there still. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. yeah. Well, recently when I was at the SDMS conference, you did a talk on bioeffects that was fascinating to me on, uh, for so many reasons. But obviously, as a sonographer, I get asked many times um, a day, is, is, is ultrasound safe? Um, how do you know it's safe? Um, is Can you just take as few pictures as possible because I don't want to expose my baby to ultrasound for long periods of time? Yeah, well... Um, well, first, can you tell us about your knowledge and background in the topics of bioeffects? Well, and again, dumb blind luck. I, I was able to serve uh, four years on the AIUM Bioeffects Committee when I was involved in the governance in that organization. Uh, so got introduced very early on to the potential for bioeffects, uh, which are real, by the way. Uh, and again, is ultrasound safe? Yes, ultrasound is safe if it is used safely. 
which means it's in the hands of knowledgeable practitioners who know what they're doing and appreciate the potential of what the instrument can do, both positive and negative. And that was sort of the goal and basis of my talk is to make sure sonographers understood that yes, it's safe as long as it's used safely, but the potential is clearly there. And it's one of my uh, introductory comments was, uh, it's not a question of when, it, it, it's, say it's not a question of if, it's a question of when some ultrasound related bio effect will occur. And I just want to impress upon everybody there that you do not want to be that person. Okay. Sure. You don't want to go be, go down in history as that person. Sure. <laughs> you do not want to be the John Wilkes Booth of sonography. So, yeah. So, but, can, but again, can there's you elaborate on what you, what you mean by that and what you may expect may come up eventually. Well, and, and what and our again, response to, to me, it's, it's, it's very clear. The at-risk population is the fetus. You, given today's instruments with their output uh, limitations and everything else, you, I see no way you can really harm an adult patient. I just don't see how you could possibly do it. I suppose someone will find a way, uh, but it won't be because of ultrasound exposure. It'll be some other phenomenon. But the fetus is clearly the organism at risk in my mind because it's developing, it's evolving, it's dividing cells like crazy. Uh, and that's when things are most susceptible to thermal effects. And that's the primary effect of ultrasound. It creates heat energy because it's absorbed by the body. And if you absorb enough heat, you raise tissue temperature. If you raise tissue temperature to a high enough level, it's teratogenic and can cause other problems in development of the fetus, particularly early on. And as we're going to more and more first trimester ultrasound now, for good reasons, mm -hmm. uh, that risk gets higher. So again, uh, ultimately, I see something happening. I don't know what. It's going to be in fetal development. It's going to be very difficult to prove it was related to ultrasound, but it's going to happen sometime. Do you feel like there's any claims keep, keep out there? pushing it as far off in the future as humanly possible. Absolutely. So, Is there yeah. any claims out there that have been made so far that you think carry any validity as far as, oh man, I've heard them all, left-handedness, autism, um, you know, on that spectrum. Do you feel like there's any that you think, well, you know, this does need to be looked closer at, you know? Yeah, I mean, there, there's certainly a lot of studies out there that show relationships but I see nothing out there that shows cause and effect. And I think the, the AAU and Bioeffects Committee keeps on top of this. I keep track of what they do still, and they stay on top of this very well. And I think they would agree with that. There's nothing out there cause and effect. Yes, there are relationships, but there's a lot of relationships out there. Uh, and again, the, the, the most recent one that came up was the autism studies. And again, but again, these were people who were already at high risk for autism. And it's just to what degree did the autism occur? And it wasn't ever really shown that the ultrasound had anything to do with the autism in the first place. Uh, and it wasn't a, a strong establishment that the degree of autism was related to ultrasound either. Sure. So these, these were patients already at super high risk to be autistic and probably would have been with or without ultrasound. Okay. So again, that, that study didn't to me, really prove anything in terms of cause and effect. Didn't prove much of anything except raise a lot of alarm around the country. Yeah. Uh, but again, and there are, say, a number of studies out there, yeah. Does ultrasound cause more left-handedness? No, but there's there's certainly a relationship to that. Uh, 
But again, we have an international left-handers day now, so we can celebrate that fact. <laughs> <laughs> it seems like there's more presidents in the White House. Yeah, yeah. At least there is. Uh, again, I don't see I don't see any cause and effect out there at this point. Uh, sure. But again, the the instruments clearly and animal studies have shown this and can very conclusively the capability is there in during fetal development to cause a bio effect. We just haven't seen any physical evidence in humans yet of it. So in, in my lifetime and years, we may not, which is a good thing. Yeah. And do you feel like um, as far as the, res- you know, sonographers take on the responsibility um, when using the Alara principle, that that's what we can do to do our part to decrease incidence of bio effects. Do you think the major responsibility is in the hands of the people developing the new technologies and the um, ultrasound companies like GE and Philips and, that are putting the machines out because really doesn't the power at which the ultrasound is given is really in their hands before they even give it to the center. Oh, and, and again, it's everybody's responsibility. Uh, it's, I mean, yes, the companies have responsibility. They can't exceed the allowable limits. Okay. Uh, those are relatively safe. It's certainly for adults. Those things are, those limits are absolutely safe. Yes, there's potential in, in fetal cases, but that's why sonographers have the Alara principle. Sure. As low as reasonably achievable. Uh, so again, as long as they follow that, they aren't going to cause any harm. Uh, ordering physicians have responsibility. Don't order unnecessary ultrasounds. Interpreting physicians and medical directors have responsibility. Don't allow unnecessary ultrasounds to be performed in your department. Uh, so it's everybody's responsibility. Uh, not not just you can't lay it just on on one group at all. I mean, the entire field has to be aware of the potential for problems, and I think to a great great and large extent it is. And everybody has to take steps to make sure that they aren't the weak link in the chain. Sure, and obviously, diagnostic ultrasounds are what we consider growth. Um, sorry, confirmation of dates and anatomy ultrasound have their purposes um, to date the pregnancy so that we can know where things are at. But as far as entertainment ultrasound for um, just getting pictures of the fetus. What are your thoughts on that related to the risk of bio effects? Oh, uh, and again, the, to me, there, there's no, no place for the entertainment videos with ultrasound at all. Uh, they shouldn't exist. Yes, I have no problem. If someone is there for a valid clinical reason and they're getting an ultrasound, preserve some of those images, preserve cine clips, no problem. But to do a video strictly for the purpose of seeing the fetus, no. That is much too, there, the risk benefit there is infinite because there's, there's a small risk and there's zero benefit. Sure. So when you divide by zero, things get very large in a hurry. Yeah. So <laughs> in, in, in my world, there's no place for strictly that. But yes, as part of a diagnostic study, certainly preserve part of that yeah. uh, and, and allow the parents to see that or give them something uh, that, that's part of that study. No, I have no problem with that whatsoever. Absolutely. That, 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 that the diagnostic medical workup can be the answer. Exactly. There's a medical reason for doing the study, but there's no reason you can't share parts of that with the patient and the patient's family. I know a lot of our sonographers listening um, that are um, new or maybe even in school, um, you know, that are weary of like, oh my gosh, how do I make sure that every time I'm operating my machine, if my clinical applications people from the company didn't tell me what to keep it below, where is the best resource in your opinion that they can go to find out exactly what MI they should be under, exactly what TI, as far as like recent publications or something you've put out? Uh, well, that's a, that's a tough question because I don't know of anything really recent. 
uh, is put out. If they uh, are SDMS members, they can go yes. online and, and look up uh, my BioFX talk because that goes into that in, in some detail. Uh, but again, I would just go into Google Scholar. Sure. And, and again, to look up uh, thermal index and mechanical index for ultrasound. Okay. That, that will direct them to the most recent articles. Uh, so, and I, I say Google Scholar as opposed to PubMed because there are a lot of journals that aren't listed in PubMed, like Society of Vascular Ultrasound and uh, JDMS, JVU and JDMS, that you can find articles in through Google Scholar you won't find listed in PubMed. So Google Scholar, Thermal Index, Mechanical Index, and, and go to the most recent ones and, and just look for review articles because that will be your best source of information. Thank you. That's I don't great. have any one specific one out there that I've seen recently that, that I recommend. But, and again, most of the new textbooks out there uh, that are coming out with ultrasound will also have information uh, on, on thermal and mechanical indices. They'll have a bioeffect section in the, the, the newer textbooks. Okay, great. Well, that's what I really wanted you to say because I've been recommending that people go listen to your talk because when I was there, I was, when I heard you talking about like, you should yep. never be, I was like, oh, mm-hmm. it down. Like yep. I've been paying a lot more attention and there's been times where I've been in a preset that they gave us that I just used, you know, mindlessly before that now when I'm in there and before I'm ready to save the picture, I'm looking up at the MINTI like, oh, I need to turn it down. I need to turn it down. So yep. So you made an impact on me. I'm sure you've made well, an impact that's, on me. I'm glad to hear that. Yeah, one person at a time. Yeah, yeah that's right. I'll keep <laughs> spreading the word, and I'm hoping that this podcast will yeah. give people yep. the reminder, but also now give them a, a resource to go listen yep. to your talk. With all the new point-of-care types of ultrasound, all the new handheld devices, um, the probes that are being engineered to not even use crystals anymore and, and smaller pieces of plastic and um, such, um, and this being widely available and much cheaper for people to have access to, what, how do you see, what problems do you see in trying to um, kind of expand the Alara principle to all these point-of-care providers now? And it, it's, it's uh, again, when, when Alara first came out and they talked about, and this goes back to, again, I think about 1990, uh, when the National Electronics Manufacturers Association convened a large group of people, again, fortunately, I was able to be part of that through SDMS, uh, when they came up with the whole concept of the output display standard to show the, the uh, tissue imaging uh, factors, uh, soft tissue imaging, bone, et cetera, to show in the mechanical index, uh, to show those on the screen. And again, that was just a large part of everybody being aware of what was going on and it just all goes back to education. You just have to, edu- if you educate people properly in the proper and safe use of ultrasound, it'll be a safe device. Uh, so, and again, I think most uh, areas, of fields of medicine now where point of care is expanding, they're making a point to, in most part, to educate their physicians within those societies and groups how to properly use ultrasound. Yes, it has a great application in a lot of areas, no question, point-of-care ultrasound is here to stay. It's not going away, and it's a good thing mm-hmm. if used properly. Mm-hmm. And I think the responsible medical organizations and societies are taking every effort, making every effort they can to educate uh, their physicians in the proper and safe use of ultrasound. And that's what it takes, good education programs. And when the, is it, when the FDA approves the use of these devices, is that when they look at the output potential or the power output potential that well, they have? 
And, and again, no device can be sold that, that exceeds the FDA allowable output limits. So the manufacturers can't make one. Okay. Uh, so that's not going to be an issue. And it's just you, you put the instruments in the hands of people who don't understand how to use it safely, then, then th bad things can happen. But that's true in any, any instance. So make efforts to educate the folks. You'll be in good shape. One other quick question regarding that. So cell phone usage has come up with its own things of bioeffects and um, does it cause you know damage to carry your cell phone in your pocket or close to you? And there's a lot of these apps that are coming out on cell phones that you just simply attach a probe to your cell phone to use. Is there a concern for the cell phone devices being close in close use with patients? Uh, I would think not. If cell phones really were damaging, the entire world would be nothing but walking zombies right now because <laughs> people are inseparable. Uh, they have cell phones growing out of their left ear now, as best I can tell. Are you sure that's uh, not up and coming in the next 10 years? <laughs> yeah, uh, yeah, oh, I know. It's, it's part of evolution. We'll be born with one soon. But, <laughs> but again, if that, if that were a real hazard, we'd see the results of that. I mean, again, the hazard is in the inappropriate use of the device. If you're texting and driving, you're setting yourself up for bad things. I mean, you now have probes that plug into cell phones. The only risk there is make sure the cell phone screen has, has enough resolution to accurately see what you're trying to depict. So you can use your cell phone as an ultrasound device now with the appropriate probe plugged into it. So mm -hmm. nothing wrong with that. It makes, it makes it that much more readily available to people who know what they're doing. Sure. So with all your tremendous experience on the biomedical engineering side, the clinical side, research side. Do, what do you see for potentials in the future beyond that cell phone as far as in the world of ultrasound? Where do we go next or what do we leap to? Well, and again, we're, we're going to be a very interconnected society worldwide, globally connected so I see ultrasound, to me, the future for ultrasound is humongous. Uh, it's, it's very bright. It's non-invasive. You can miniaturize it. You can take it pretty much anywhere. It can run off batteries, do all kinds of things with it. And, and once we can then, in, in an efficient way, communicate those results around the world virtually instantaneously, like we're doing via the internet right now, uh, and again, it just opens up an entire global ultrasound community of, of, of diagnosis where you can see a patient in one corner of the world and have a diagnostician halfway around the world interacting with that person and coming to the appropriate diagnosis and get into the right treatment. So it's just a matter of, of getting the globe connected with ultrasound uh, that will do that. And, and they're working on things like wireless probes now. Uh, yes. all kinds of things that, that will enhance that interconnectivity in the future. So it's, it's probably not even that far away. I'm sure the companies are working on this in their back rooms, even as we speak. So, yeah, yeah I, it's a, it's a, it's a great future for ultrasound. In somebody's no garage, like every, everything else. Somebody, yeah. Something was developed in somebody's garage first, you know? So. Yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah. If <laughs> well, we can think of it, so can other people. So. <laughs> exactly. It's just the first one to it, right? The first one to go through yeah. with it. When looking back on your life, um, what contributions is Phil Bendick most proud of? And what legacy would you like to leave behind? Well, and again, the, the legacy part's easier. Just if people remember me as someone who wanted to leave the world a better place than they came into it, I'm perfectly happy with that. Uh, and again, what I'm most proud of is probably uh, the, the knowledge I've been able to impart to the people I've worked with 
because it's all about the people in the end, at the end of the day. Uh, so worked with a lot of people over the years and had a lot of wonderful experiences with them. And say so that's that's probably what I'm most proud of. If I if I have left them again with a somewhat better understanding of whatever it is they were trying to understand than before when they started, then I'm just thrilled to death with that. So just having been able to work with all of these wonderful people in, in the field all these years. So it's it's been great, great fun. It continues to be a great trip. <laughs> <laughs> That's an amazing way to put it. But when you were growing up as a child and then, um, you know, in your small town, did you ever imagine that you would play such an integral role in healthcare? Oh, absolutely not. I was going to be a garbage man as a kid because they got to be outdoors all day long. <laughs> it's a good physical exercise and outdoors. It didn't get any better than that. <laughs> well, maybe that's the only role you haven't done is be a garbage man. So, Well, your- yeah, I still take the trash out on a weekly basis. That's one of my chores. So, <laughs> Well, and somehow I imagine that in your backyard you have a garden or something where you get to be outdoors some. Well, actually, I, I actually don't have a garden, but uh, tend to be outdoors as much as possible doing doing active type things. So, yeah. but yeah, yeah. Gardening is there. I have a black thumb, so gardening has never been my thing. <laughs> you and me too. That's why I have people like this coming over and taking a look at my yard. Like, how do I keep this plant alive? Yeah. I no idea. <laughs> Now, we have a yard service keeps the yard alive. I just don't mess with what they what they recommend. So, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah okay. we uh, get outside, uh, walking, play golf, bicycle, uh, do as much as we can outside. Uh, no question about that. Enjoy the great out of doors. Yeah, there's too much fascinating stuff out there not to get out yeah. there. Well, Phil, thank you. It's been so, I knew it was going to be amazing having you on the show. And well, I, this has been great fun. I appreciate the opportunity for sure. And glad talking to both of you. Yeah. Yeah, you too. I hope that uh, maybe we can have you on again for another talk. I mean, there's so many hats you've worn. I'm sure there's going to be another reason for us to cross paths. I love to talk, obviously, about these topics, particularly the only hard parts getting me to shut up on time. (laughs) Phil, thank you for joining us for our podcast today. We are very impressed with your career and appreciate your time. For our listeners, please join us for our next podcast, episode 11, interviewing Dr. Diane Kawamura, who has been a longtime educator at Weber State University in Utah, as well as a pioneer in our field and a significant contributor to the world of sonography. We would like to encourage you to email us at internationalsonographypodcast at gmail.com if you have any suggestions for speakers or questions regarding our content. We look forward to hearing from you and please join us for episode 11.